The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you are about to listen to discusses the following works. Transformers, Game of Thrones, Doctor Who, Inception, The Matrix, Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Enterprise, The Star Trek Movies, To Kill a Mockingbird, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Orville, Star Wars, Harry Potter, The Princess Bride, The Shining, Psycho, Twin Peaks, The Wizard of Oz, Casablanca, Pulp Fiction, Pottermore, Black Mirror, The Good Place, Black Panther, The Dark Tower, and His Dark Materials. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone. Okay, so this week we're doing the first of two episodes from the Science Fiction Popular Cultures Conference. Um, In Kona, Hawaii. Kona, Hawaii. This has been just a horrible several days. (laughs) Um, They made us snorkel. (laughs) (laughs) They made us, like, go out on the lava rocks early in the morning and watch the sun come up. Um, the weather was nice. The people were cool. Seeing giant manta rays. Yeah, manta rays. Huma huma nuka nuka apoas. It, it's just been bad. But we persevere. <laughs> okay, so in, in this episode, um, we've interviewed some of the folks at the conference. Um, we start with an interview with the conference hosts, Tim Slater and Stephanie Slater. And then we talked to Greg Littman, um, who's a philosopher at um, Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. And um, he's doing some really cool stuff, and we'll get into that. Um, the interviews are, are kind of long, so I think we'll forego, um, as we did when we came, when we broadcast from the PCA, um, the what do we like in type segments, and we'll just kind of go straight to the interviews. Plus, we already told you we're like in Hawaiian sunsets and... <laughs> no, no, remember we were doing that whole stick where we acted like it was really bad. Oh, whoops, I blew our To enjoy the sunsets okay. and the, okay. the the nectar beverages everywhere you go and all of that um, on the big island of Hawaii. So um, <clears throat> we'll, just, we'll just sort of dive into it. Um, and then next week, we'll be back with another set of interviews that we did there with some other folks. Um, and we'll take that opportunity to talk about what we were presenting at the conference as well. Um, one caveat, um, we did some of the interviews in our room, which had really nice acoustics. But others of the interviews, we were, because um, we had already checked out of our room, forced to use this sort of large um, club room. It had ballroom-esque properties. Um, the windows were open. You could hear... Um, the, the microphone um, or the amplified voices of 
other people presenting at the conference. We edited all that as best we could, but you know, if occasionally you hear a waiter drop a tray of plates or um, you know somebody scream, "Oh my God, it's the guy who played Gimli," <laughs> um, <clears throat> then you'll you'll know why. Oh, we should let's tell them your story. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, about Gamely. Yeah, about, about Gamely. So John Reese davies was there, and um, he was ubiquitous. Everybody was enjoying him at the conference. So we were out on our morning walk, and we, we came around a particular corner, and there he was. And for some reason, he looks right at me and says, Good morning, young man. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, yeah. the oh, interviews. It occurred to me that we didn't need to tell that story. It's a fun story. Oh, I know, but I think we told the story in the interview with, with him and Stephanie. Oh. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's just resolve to tell that story over and over and over. Yeah, it's, it's happening. Um, and then Rachel got attacked by a wild animal. Um, it was it was coral. Um, I, I don't <laughs> know how she couldn't escape it. Slowest moving animal in the history of the universe. It came up on me. But it came up on her. Got her good. All right, so to um, to the interviews? To the interviews. All right, let's have at it. Hey, we're here with Stephanie and Tim Slater. Could you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, I'm uh, Stephanie Slater. I My PhD is in cognitive science from University of Arizona, but before that I taught high school for 15 years, and before that I uh, went to MIT and studied planetary sciences, wow. and then I went to Harding University and I studied uh, mathematics and biology. So I obviously... You know, we cannot, cannot keep on one path. Um, I'm the director for the Center for Astronomy and Physics Education Research, which is a group that studies how students learn and engage with science. And by students, I mean everyone from infants to 99 years old. We study them all. Nice. Um, I'm also the programming director at a little tiny science fiction convention in the middle of the Pacific called HawaiiCon. Hey, hi, my name is Tim Slater. Um, I'm a university professor at the University of Wyoming. Um, I'm an endowed professor of science education, um, where I study the uh, interface of, of high school and college, how students make that transition in terms of how they engage with the learning of science. Um, I particularly interested in working with uh, minority and diverse students and how they make the transition to college and passionately interested in working with students um, from Native American reservations and indigenous students in Hawaiian Islands. Well, I lo love the educational bent to both of your projects. That's, that's great. Yeah. So I'm formally trained as an astronomer um, and Hawaii is a great place to be doing astronomy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my role here at the science fiction convention, Stephanie mentioned the Hawaii Con Science Fiction Convention, is I'm the science track director. So I bring in all the scientists that speak to our conventionees. Oh, nice. Well, you've done a good job. It's, yeah. it's a great lineup this year. Thank, Thank you. you very much. So maybe you could tell our listeners about the two portions of this event. Um, there's the kind of academic conference so, so Hawaii Con is a nonprofit. We support uh, STEAM education, so STEM plus arts education, um, on the island of Hawaii for our, our kids. We've got a lot of under underprivileged children on this island, and there's a lot of resources that are needed. So we try to bring them in, and in doing that, we run basically your standard science fiction convention. But embedded in that, we run two additional conferences. We run the uh, Science Fiction Popular Cultures Conference, in which we try to bring in the brightest thinkers about popular culture in the world. And us. Yes. <laughs> to come come share with our island. Many many people on this island uh, leave the island very, very rarely. And so they never would have the opportunity to interact with and learn from people like you. So we bring you here 
so that we, it's, it's like mini seminars every time you guys come. And the other conference that we run is the Pacific Area uh, STEAM Teaching Conference. And that is for teachers so that they can come in and also learn from you, learn from the scientists, learn from the actors. So we're trying to multi-purpose this thing to serve our community as well as we can. When you have an opportunity with the amazing actors, writers, scientists, costume designers, film writers that are here, if the opportunity to have them interact with teachers who consider how do we leverage mm -hmm. this into a year-round program for uh, doing a better job of teaching our children is, is a wasted opportunity if we don't do it. We've had uh, Terry Brooks comes every year and he does writing workshops for the children of this island and for the adults of this island as well. So they're getting writing workshops from Terry Brooks. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Mindy Sterling ran improv workshops, we, we right? That that, so I remember fun. this. Yeah. That was so fun. So, I mean, it's a great educational experience for all of us. And we find that the, the, the talent, the guests who come in here, they find it really refreshing to be able to share of themselves in a way that's not just talking about their shows. So it's, it's a beautiful, life-giving thing to all of us. Oh. That sounded very woo-woo. Sorry yeah. about it. Well, well, a certain amount of that's good. Mm -hmm. um, so... Each of you presented something um, at the conference mm -hmm. as well. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, we can get some pop culture in here. So right? my particular interest in uh, look, using a science fiction convention to teach science is uh, leveraging students and people's natural interest in the coolness of science fiction, whether we're going to outer space or going to another planet or we're figuring out ways to save our own planet, and use that as an excuse to talk about scientific concepts. So uh, my paper this year was about the use of tsunamis and tidal waves in science fiction. Um, and so it, it's common, a common trope in science fiction is to put everybody's life in imminent danger. Mm -hmm. And whether that's coming from an asteroid impact, whether that's coming from a giant tornado or being uh, lost on a spaceship and your oxygen is about to run out, uh, one of the most common ones is to use a giant tidal wave to destroy the city. And so uh, we talked about giant tidal waves that are used um, throughout science fiction. We show a bunch of examples of movie clips of the world being destroyed by giant tidal waves. And then we say, okay... That's very cool. But is that the way it really is? And then we talk, uh, show video and talk about real tsunamis that actually happen. And then the audience has to come to a conclusion of, did the, art, did the artists and the filmmakers use artistic license? And did they use too much artistic license? And if they did use artistic license, is that okay? And... Um, did they That's, go all Michael Bay? So they, did, yeah, did they go all Michael Bay and Transformers? Yeah. Well, and we've done this in the past, talking about weather on Mars, for mm -hmm. instance, is another example. Eclipses. Mm -hmm. We've done it with eclipses yeah. in science fiction. As if we use the excitement of science fiction as an excuse to gorilla teach uh, scientific concepts. The yeah. causes of seasons in Game of Thrones has been a perennial favorite. I mean, okay. lots of conventions want to have that talk. Time travel oh. in Doctor Who is very popular. Could you say more about the, the Game of Thrones thing? Well... <laughs> so, so uh, the end slide, like I will not get to the end of this talk, so I'll just tell you what the last slide okay. says, is that uh, seasons in Game of Thrones, the, the, the erratic seasons that we see, is caused by magic. <laughs> That's it. So we've seen a lot. So I've, I've, I, a friend of ours had graduate students at Penn State who use supercomputer time. Whose to names will not be named. We would not say anything. A university, unnamed okay. university in Pennsylvania and, and, yeah, was funded by the state. <laughs> right. So um, to, tr to try to model uh, how the seasons could be caused, explain that. And, and you know, lots of popular culture. So going through and kind of debunking each one of those, but bringing people back to why seasons actually occur. Yeah. You know, like, what is this? Well, let's remember the basics of this, right? And then at the end saying, you know, it's, it's got to be magic. It's the only plausible explanation. 
And that should be okay because there's also dragons. Right. And, you know, there's, there's dragons. dragons. I was going things. with a dungeon master roll the 23. <laughs> That's and, right. That's right. Well, and we do the same thing with gaming. So here at this convention is a very large gaming convention. People from all over the world fly here to video to, to a tabletop game, role-play game with some mm-hmm. of the best and most legendary role-play gamers in the world. So we provide okay. sessions for dungeon masters and game masters on how to use science in their campaigns. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, yeah. how, do you, how do you include the moon and how the moon changes over the course of a day? Um, or, and of course of the night or how does the sun change and shadows change so they can use real effects to, oh, for cool. the progress of time during their battles you know you start the battle the moon is here you end the battle the moon is here how much time has gone by how much health do you have or if you're going to decide to rest you rest until which moon phase mm-hmm. um, and so we use it as an excuse to teach moon phases oh, yeah. or motions of the sun oh, and under the, ex- under the banner of let's do a better storytelling for our, our game designers mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, but we do similar things in the classroom, right? So mm-hmm. if we're teaching, you know, skepticism, it's great to pull mm. out Inception or the Matrix or something. Sure. Exactly. So it seems like a similar kind it's of... It's similar. It's yes. guerrilla teaching, really yeah, is. Yeah. Yes, we're covert, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Nice. Um, let's, Go ahead. Please. Please tell me your I was just going to say our, our, our academic colleagues are all going to flock to this. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and well, they should. It's an amazing experience for academics, yeah. um, not only because uh, of all the really fantastic things that are going on, like you get to snorkel with the manta rays, you get to tour the volcanoes, you get to meet with cultural experts to talk about, about the nature of culture and how that's how it's changed, but because um, you meet people across all fields. So our yeah. academic conference, the Science Fiction's Popular Cultures Academic Conference, has historians, philosophers, ethicists, pragmatists, cognitive scientists, language <laughs> experts, um, historians, a wide More variety of scientific, uh, scientific professors, we, amazing. And they all get together, um, which is very different from your typical academic conference where you're just talking to people just like you. Yeah. Um, right. And so that's a really, really fun combination. But you had a paper well, as well please. this year. <laughs> yeah. So um, in, in my cognitive science work, I started off looking at spatial reasoning and uh, cognitive load and how that impacted people's ability to understand science. Um, but I really kept getting drawn into controversial issues. In, uh, apparently intractable problems, right? Like the, the, the percentage of women in, in astronomy, right? Mm-hmm. That we've thrown a billion dollars at that and have gotten almost nowhere. So why is that, right? Evidently, our current models are wrong, right? They are, what we're doing doesn't work, which means we don't understand the problem. Yeah. So I look at other problems, like uh, the thing that brought me to Hawaii was the issue of astronomy in Hawaii and the construction of the telescopes on these mountains, Right. Uh, we've had tons and tons and tons to a decade of conversation about the newest telescope that the uh, California state system would like to build. And yet we've gotten nowhere. Therefore, the problem is not properly defined. So I decided to address the issue of uh, Star Trek Discovery and why it is that that show is so divisive in the Star Trek fandom and that it can't, just like with uh, women's representation in, in astronomy or the building of this telescope, the problem in the, the Star Trek community is not about facts. It cannot be. At least I want to propose. Okay. I want to propose okay. that it's not about the facts. It's not whether or not there's they're stapling dead Klingons to the outside of their ship or the Klingons. Which they would never do. Or um, or if there's a spore drive or it's Which it's, would never happen. It's, it's not about the Pretty facts. Simple, right? It's not yeah. about the facts. Something else is going on and my gut instinct having done this for a little while, is that something is driving feeling. So can we make it something? In my work, I like to bring it back and be a little less theoretical and a little more empirical. 
is there something happening that's measurable that might be at play? So I decided to look at um, filmmaking techniques, comparing classic Trek, which would be original series, Star Trek Continues, which is very much made in the same frame, Next Gen, Enterprise, everything sort of prior to the Kelvin timeline, and then look at everything Kelvin timeline and afterwards and see if I could look at filmmaking techniques that might force feeling. So are there measurable differences in the lighting structures in the classic track versus Kelvin timeline track, mm -hmm. which, you know, discovery is part of. The prime. Are there, yeah, it's prime timeline, but I think maybe that's a confusing term. So the classic track and the new timeline, which this is part of. Um, are there... Do they film it differently? Are the camera angles different? Because I can measure that, right? And it, it turns out they are absolutely different. The camera, uh, the way cameras are, the camera angles are handled in all the classic Trek follows the same pattern from the original series to the last episode of Enterprise. When you look at all the Kelvin timeline, the movies and uh, Discovery, completely different set of camera techniques. Completely different set of lighting. Could you tell us a little bit about what um, what you have in mind when you say camera technique? Sure. So, so if if you've never watched Star Trek, this example will absolutely not make sense. But normally, when you when they start a scene in Star Trek, there's a wide angle shot that perhaps shows the entire bridge, and it's flat. So, like the camera is head on, right? Yeah. It's not from above. It's not from below. It's not cockeyed. It's nothing like that. Um, there, that's the angle that establishes the shot. When they start a discussion, it's never a wide angle. It's, I look, the camera looks at you, the camera looks at you, the camera looks at you, the camera looks at you. Um, when the camera is tracking, nothing substantive is happening. Even when there's generally no talking going on, but when there is talking, it's technobabble, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, when you look at discovery, that's not the case. Major plot development and character development is occurring while the camera is tracking. And in fact, some scenes are all tracking. The camera never stops motion. There's no established set, set shot. There's, you know, not as much backward, forward, backward, forward. And I'm not saying that one of those is better. I'm trying to be very objective about it because yeah. I have mm -hmm. my opinion about which one I like best, but I'm trying to be very objective and say, okay, that is a measurable difference. Now, what does that style of camera work versus this style of camera? How does the human body react to that? Mm -hmm. Right? So we're, we're organic. We've got bodies. We're animals. How does the human body respond to an object that that's constantly in motion? Versus how does the human mind respond to stillness? Right? And the stillness... Uh, results in filmmaking that is drama. It's more drama. Whereas the other is the, the filmmaking style, the camera styles that you use in action movies. So the reason why we feel, one of the reasons why we feel different is because the cinematographer, the directors, whoever, have consciously made a break with previous Star Trek modes of filmmaking. And I'm not a filmmaker at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I, I'm interested in why people respond to certain things the way they do yeah. and, and to try to get past, try to get past the wishy-washiness of it to something that's empirical. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. yeah. I, wonder, I wonder what motivates um, that sort of change with the, the filmmakers, right? So there's, I mean, maybe it's just wanting to be different, put a, a stamp on or, or Could something. Could be. 
But could, could be, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. I, I right? noticed something that's also measurable recently. Um, I was watching Star Trek The Next Generation in the afternoon, and um, it, it didn't feel the same to me as it used to. And this is mm. one of these shows that I've watched over and over and mm-hmm. over. So I can kind of count on it to feel the same. And as I thought about it, it occurred to me it's this big... Um, 4D, high definition. Oh, you're watching it on that. Yeah, (laughs) and it it doesn't look right. And and it's a measurable kind of thing, and I I don't enjoy seeing it. So Mm -hmm. not like I'm not enjoying the show. I can imagine um, that. You know, which is really great for watching the news or for things that are are made to be in high def. But... um, there's been some conversation about that, yeah. right? The um, the original series has been remastered, mm-hmm. so it's brighter. It's it's you can watch it this way. And there's been some conversation about raising enough money to remaster DS9, oh. so that you can watch it on a modern television set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, I mean, you know? it looks like Super 8 video in a way <laughs> with really bright lights, and it's not supposed it. to. It's no, incongruous huh? with the content, right? Yeah. If you were say, if you were watching uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And yeah. having that same experience, you go, oh, that's okay. Yeah. But uh, 2001 yeah. A Space Odyssey, grainy looking like a Super 8 film? No, that doesn't Yeah, no, work. it feels like it's missing some filter. Uh, yeah. Perhaps. So, um, do you guys have anything coming up you'd like to promote? Um, well, absolutely. More of these things? So, or? the most important project that we're working on is this little science fiction convention <laughs> that happens in Hawaii the last weekend of September every year. Mm-hmm. Um and it really is a year-round endeavor to, to pull this thing off because it is a traditional science fiction fandom-oriented convention that's all volunteer-run um, under the banner of a charity event, as well as an exposition with the vendor hall, as well as an academic conference, as well as a K-12 teacher conference, all uh, interwoven so they can use each other's resources. So, for example, when you come to give a talk... Um, here, you're going to be giving a session to your academic colleagues, but you also will be giving a session to, to the, the fans. You may also be giving a session with local teachers, and you may even be talking to a bunch of eighth grade students. Um, and so it's a you know, real uh, academic challenge. It's intellectual challenges. How do I change my language from uh, an academic paper where maybe I'm actually physically reading orating my paper to how do I engage a bunch of 13-year-olds and make them think my ideas are really interesting and ponderous? So (laughs) briefly, just to follow up on that, um, if people want to find out about this conference, what keyword should they Google or do you want to just say your web address? Our website is www.hawaiicon.com. Or, I mean, if you, search, if you do a search for academic um, conferences in Hawaii, it will certainly show up. Or science fiction conferences in Hawaii, but it'll all show up there. And um, so we're pretty easy to find. Nice. Um, and I hope we're easy to find because we work really hard to become easy to find. <laughs> yeah. um, you also find us at booths at other major conventions, gaming conventions. Uh, you'll find ads in the popular culture convention. Um, so we are out there and easy to find. Um, and we'd be excited to have your listeners come out and join us, yes. whether they participate or just watch or turn it into as an excuse for a family vacation that's tax deductible. Yeah, we're, we're doing two... Shh, um, don't say that out loud. It is a tax deductible <laughs> event. Yeah, but we're, we're devoting two episodes to this conference. So oh, we're, fantastic. We're going to drive this point home. We're really interesting come, people here to talk to, for sure. to this event. It's, it's absolutely well, fantastic. I think we... The, so this is not my, my upcoming thing, but so I, I still want to be able to fit that in. Sure. But um, <laughs> I think I think that our island and our conference has been we've been really blessed by that the quality of of academics who are coming out here. 
We're really, really blessed. Our fans love to hear what you guys are talking about because I, I mean, I don't want to judge fans at other conventions, but our fans are not so interested in getting signatures from stars. They really want to talk to somebody about their fandom. And this is the one chance that they get all year long. So being able to engage with people like you and uh, really dig into why it is that they love these things so much and what it means to them is a precious thing. So, We've had some good conversations. Yeah, we have so, fun so questions, family, questions so. that these guys are really interested in are things like, how has Wonder Woman's costume changed over the last 50 years? Mm-hmm. Conversation, oh. A conversation that fans often want to, or we, we motivate to have with them, or what's the relationship between what's, what is science and what is sacred? Um, and what's the overlap between science yeah. and religion and spirituality? Well, this morning um, we had a conversation called, uh, the panel was called The Future, mm-hmm. and it was um, Andre Bermanis, who was the science consultant on much of the the classic Star Trek and now is a writer and executive producer on Orville. Mm -hmm. And Rob Sawyer, who is the winningest sci-fi award person ever, is a great novelist. And John Rhys Davies, who has been around and has some pretty strong opinions about the future of the world. Who this morning passed me by and said, Good morning, young man. <laughs> I don't, I don't, that make you feel good. I don't want to tell him I'm like 90. But, you know, that was the same for one of the It's charming, right? Just, yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, so. And we and, and and it's been wonderful with guests. I've, yesterday, we um, uh, that poor man. I don't know what he's going to do. His body's not going to make it. He. Uh, we had so many different sessions where people were just sitting around very casually smoking cigars and drinking bourbon with John Reese Davies and, you know, just talking about the world. He had his liver removed a few years ago. But we, um, the panel was about, um, the, the world is changing. Mm-hmm. And as the world is changing in really maybe unprecedented ways, what are the things that we have to hold on to? Right. Yeah. What are the core ideas that we should grasp as we're kind of being washed down this river of the future? Anyway. So my project is coming up that I'm pretty excited about. Um, the one I'm going to force myself to finish now that I'm saying this on your podcast. I know it's out, is, oh, wow. <laughs> it's out there now. It's been released. Um, as I've worked with the Hawaiians, I've found quite a few pieces that pieces of nonfiction that were published back in the 60s and 70s that are out of print, but I think they are really, really important for us to understand um, the, the evolution of, of our situation here in the Hawaiian Islands. And one that I have to finish is um, Hokulea, Voyage to Tahiti, which was written by Ben Finney, uh, who passed away last year and who I was supposed to finish this with before he passed away. Um, so we're republishing that original ethnographic study that he did of the first voyage, the first Polynesian voyage um, from Hawaii to Tahiti in the modern era and all the, the anthropological work that he wanted to add into the back end. Oh, so if you don't see that thing on Amazon by December, write me at stephanie at hawaiicon.com and say, Dear Professor, where is your book? I need the motivation. Well, thank you awesome. very much. Thank you. Yeah. That's been great. conversation. Oh, thank you. Hi, Greg. Will you tell us a little about yourself? Uh, certainly. I'm, I'm Greg Littman. I teach philosophy at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Uh, let's see, teach philosophy of mind, epistemology, metaphysics, uh, philosophy through popular literature and film and philosophy and film, among other courses I'll get me to teach now and then. Great. You're a perfect guest for the podcast. Yeah, and, and a good friend uh, of the podcast, um, I can report that 
when we first put it out, I think you were the first one to give me some feedback on it. Um, oh, I love the oh, podcast. Oh, I'm a big great. fan. Oh, yeah, I really like to oh, see getting philosophy out there the way you do it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Great. yeah great. Oh. Inst- really early encouragement was great. Nice. Oh, that's oh, good. Wonderful. I'm yeah. glad to hear that because I, I believe very much what you're doing. I'm I'm very fanatic about public philosophy. I think it's so important. Oh, great. Us too. So uh, will you tell us about what you're presenting here at the conference? So um, what I'm presenting on today is the topic of fan resentment, whether it can ever be justified. Oh, that's fun. Okay. So hopefully it will be fun. I mean, you find this in a lot of fan communities where people are are resentful about uh, the art that's been produced or not produced for their favorite franchise, whatever it is, Star Trek, uh, Game of Thrones, Star Wars, Doctor Who, whatever it might be. Um, and it's intuitive on one level that that, that uh, resentment's got to be unjustified. Uh, after all, we don't know each other's stories about Star Trek, so right. what's there to be angry about? Um, so I'm looking at whether a case can be made for the justification of fan resentment in some cases. I'm not going to finally come down on a side and say okay. it can be, but I'm going to make uh, just draw out the lines of argument we could make uh, to be explored to see whether there can be grounds for resentment. Okay. Nice. So what, what would be a case? So, for example, an uh, uh, author writes a wonderful book, um, the film studio gets together and makes a production that doesn't resemble it at all. Is that...? That would certainly be, um, be a case where there, there could be some, some fan resentment. Um, what I'll mostly be focusing on is the uh, continuation of... Uh, film and television franchises. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to get into books. There's mm-hmm. a lot to get into in the, in the case of books, but mostly I'll be focusing on film and television franchises. So, for instance, um, a lot of people are upset about Star Trek Discovery. A lot of Star Trek fans are upset. They say it's not real Star Trek. It's not really set in, in the same universe. Huh. Uh, this is not what I thought I was getting and I'm up, and what I wanted and I'm upset about that. Yeah. Uh, and again, intuitively, you might say, well, well, hard cheese. I'm sorry you right, don't right, like, but right. nobody offered anything to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'll be You'll looking into positive... Positive. Sorry? You'll take what you get and be happy. Absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll be looking into pos- uh, possible responses that can be made to that. Um, a lot of those responses are going to focus on the notion of copyright. Okay. Which I think um, makes a lot of these issues a lot trickier. Because it's not as if we can go out and make our own Star Trek discovery. Um, in fact, the, the rules for Star Trek fan films changed radically in 2016. It's very yeah. difficult to do anything very much uh, along those grounds. So that's got to be taken into account too when we consider what we could conceivably be angry or not angry at the, um, at the studios about. So a, a lot of my... I'm sorry, the company's about... Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the arguments I consider will be uh, based around uh, copyright, either that copyright's innately unjust, or more commonly just that it adds weight to arguments that otherwise uh, might seem a bit thin. So, for instance, when uh, Star Trek fans complain about how much they wanted another Star Trek, it was just like the good old Star Trek. Um, On the surface, it doesn't sound like they've got much of a case. If there is a case there... It's got to be wrapped up in the fact that they're not allowed to make Star Trek or to access Star Trek that they would like better. The the only source is monopolized by by the studios. So the studios have a responsibility to do a good job because they take 
all the opportunities. It's Nobody like else can do it. The old, so, the old yes. days of the yeah. airwaves where there were three networks, and so you could be kind of upset at what got broadcast if it was all just nonsense or absolutely or pap or whatever. Yes, yeah. yes, oh, yes. That's, that's really interesting. So, um, one case that I can think of where fan resentment might be warranted is when um, something unethical is done in the universe in the in this new story. Right. Yes. I, so, uh, the new Harry Potter. He's a serial killer. Or, or well, no, I mean, so I guess one thing that I'm thinking is like, um, some fans get angry when, um, like, an Asian character is played by a white person. Mm-hmm. Oh, they whitewash, mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah, we're giving you this story, but we've done something that you might rightly feel angry about. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, I would love to have had space to go into that more. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I'm I, given I've only really got 20 minutes to right. present. Um, <laughs> that's not going to come out as much, uh, largely because uh, I don't want to get into anything where we've got to solve moral or political issues sure. before we can uh, deal with these. But you, but you make yeah. a good point. That's certainly one grounds which we could be angry. The um, the the franchise could be pushing a, a bad moral or political message. In fact, a lot of fans do seem to be angry that they think there are bad moral and political messages being pushed. Um, it's something I wanted to deal with, but with lack of time, and I didn't want to end up just saying, but we can't solve morality, so we can't dig very uh, deep there. Um, I think we can probably allow that fan resentment might be justified by that, which which is, uh, I mean, a a good point, a good point, and and establishes that in principle it can be justified. I'm sure we can think of things we wouldn't want films to do. Right. Can I get your off-the-cuff take on this? Um, And if you want to say, I haven't given this any thought um, and balk at it, that'd be perfectly fine. But there's an awful lot of resentment the last couple weeks at the thought of a reboot of The Princess Bride. Yes! <laughs> and, and my argument is this. The old one's there, and it's perfect, so so what if they botch it, and, you know, and you Nick, just not watch Nick the Cage movie. plays uh-huh. Wesley, and, you, yes. know, and, <laughs> you know, Danny DeVito plays Andre the Giant, they just, they just totally screwed up. You still have the other one. Um, and I'm just playing devil's advocate because I'm kind of one of those no yeah. oh, don't don't do this <laughs> but, it maybe seems to demonstrate a lack of respect for how good the other one was or something like that yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe that, so yeah. is is that the sort of resentment that's just not justified in your opinion well or? I I take that sort of resentment on but I don't think there's really a case that can much of a case that can be made for it so I do give it the best run I can um, and I think it's very significant because a lot of fans seem to make these kinds of comments that what's wrong with the latest artistic product is it ruins yeah. some older artistic right. product. And this word right. ruin it's keeps popping up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, if you go on the internet and listen to the angry fans of ruin, ruin, ruin. It still exists. What are you talking about? Right. expression of childhood ruin. So I, I think at most what we can say is that... Um, it uh, might distract some people from older art, which is a bit of a weak objection. We might have some kind of duty not to distract people from art. Uh, there's also the question in some cases of whether it's... I'm sorry, let's keep it at the, uh, at the level of the, of the Princess Bride. Yes, so um, I, I don't think a case can be made there for resentment in the case of the Princess Bride, it might be unfortunate, but I, I find it hard to to accuse the uh, the corporations of uh, find a way of accusing them of wrongdoing. Yeah, if there is something there, um, it would have to be, I think, something of the form. Well, this new version is going to distract 
me from the older version, yeah. I'm going to think about this rubbish when I want to be thinking about this other artwork. Or maybe my kids will only watch the new well, version. I'm, is that? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking Henry, yeah. uh, our kid, um, like... The, we've, we're starting to show him now that he's a teenager like some classic horror movies oh wonderful yeah. uh, well but so if he's seen the, the, the more recent take yeah. then the oh well those are bad special effects and uh, even if I mean like um, The Shining yes um, that one uh, clearly the older version is better I mean you, you're yes, not going to yes, be able yes. to beat that right. uh, but, but it's like we shouldn't show him the new version of Psycho even though it's Frame for frame, I <laughs> There's something great about the classic. Yeah. But then, of course, like, in response to that, it's not our say which ones he prefers. Right. right? I right, mean, he can right. prefer what he prefers. Yes. And, and I think I've been introduced to a lot of older literature and film through starting off by liking something more modern. Yeah. And then ending up going back to the, the original source. So I'm... Um, I guess I'm, I'm kind of happy about remakes in that regard. I kind of hope they'll, in fact, draw attention to yeah. the older artworks. Yeah. Whether that yeah, will happen, difficult to say. Yeah, but. I didn't watch. Uh, this isn't an ex- example of a remake, but you know when they brought when Twin Peaks came back. Um, oh, I actually right, had right. not seen the the earlier Twin Peaks. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, time to do it because something new came out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about my um, connections to certain. Um, Bits of music, right? So I, I like jazz standards. And oh, yes. More and more like really old jazz standards. But it was introduction to these through remakes, right? right. So, you know, you hear Billie Holiday singing something and you go, wow, that's amazing. And then that has you learn about Bessie Smith where you might not right. have otherwise. So there's yeah. something to that. Yeah. Um, just one other case. So I, I remember when I was younger, um, the 1980s, a, a technology emerged, emerged such that um, Ted Turner could colorize Yes. Any black and white movie. Huh. And yes. people were just going nuts. There were jokes going, he put color in the rest of The Wizard of Oz. And, <laughs> and, and, and all of that. And people were really upset about that. But again, same kind of thing, right? The originals were still yes. there. So yeah. you could always watch the, you know, yeah. Casablanca in black and white. Yeah. But suddenly, and I think yeah. there was a version of this. I think there was a color version of Casablanca that just really... And then there's the fear that, that the kids will never watch the newer versions because the older versions are... Uh, um, well, sorry, we'll never watch the older versions because right. the newer versions right. are in colour, so we'll never see it as intended to be watched. Yeah, we've, we've got a mutual acquaintance that refuses to watch anything in black and white just because it's necessarily going to be boring. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I we think, can't name names. <laughs> I think there might be a relevant difference. Uh, although, hmm, uh, let's see what you think about this. So, when it comes to the older movies, yeah. you're colorizing them, you're actually changing uh, part of... The art, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, you might think that that's not something you should do to another artist, mm-hmm. and that that's what might be problematic about it. So, I'm thinking about the case. We live in Utah, and so sorry, sorry, Utahns. Um, <laughs> but we there's a there's some this this was a lawsuit recently. I think that um, we have uh, LDS folks in the in Utah who won't watch rated R movies. Um, and uh, so there's like a clean flicks kind of situation where people go in and edit all the swear words and all the like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, but, anything ah, sexual out so mm, that the family the can then watch it. The Tarantino film's like 11 minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a clean flicks yeah. version of Pulp Fiction, which is just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but at the point at which you're actually editing someone else's art rather than making art yeah. of your own, then that might be right. problematic in a way they're just doing a reboot or something. Yes, yes. On the flip side of that, though, right, um, all the time now they'll find... Um, old analog recordings of things and they'll digitally remaster them and, right. and they look great and, um, right. and it's an attempt to maybe get at what things might have sounded like in the studio initially 
but they are different, right? And, and sometimes they fail. And I remember they, they did digital versions of all the Beatles recordings and they weren't very good and people didn't like it. And so they did another set and, mm-hmm. and those were more well thought of. Um, so, you know, Interesting. yeah, yeah there's, there's a slippery slope somewhere in there. And there's a lot of, um, yeah, artists takes that are well, like the frame by frame identical Hitchcock film. Yes, you might yes, think it's well, it's not plagiarism or something. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. they bought the rights. Um, yeah. Cool. And interesting, we, we get people these days who are upset also about artists changing their own work. So yeah. a, a lot of Star Wars fans seem to be upset about changes George Lucas made. Yeah. To uh, to Star Wars, which of course is his oh, yeah, artistic yeah. product. Yeah. Uh, but then he added these changes that weren't there, and uh, to a lot of us, it makes it worse. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the way the explosions looked in Episode Four were different. Yes. After they came up with new technologies for one through oh. three, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. They looked like the rings of Saturn sort of exploding out, and he right. went back and redid all those. But it, it was his work. Mm. Um, another example of this is um, people are terribly upset at J.K. Rowling. For oh. you know, going on Pottermore and adding details to the earlier. Oh. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. You know, and, even though they're cool details. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and then she's little, she's the author that would yeah leave well enough. Made alone. this great product. Yeah, it, yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Are there any points at which uh, resentment at Potter might be uh, resentment at Rowling might be justified? Yeah. Is a good question. Yeah. I mean, fans can be very entitled. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. no, yeah. no right. doubt about it. Right. Right. So, do you have anything that you're um, currently um, promoting? Oh, okay. So, um, Black Mirror and Philosophy is coming out soon. I've got a chapter in that. And that's the the Kyle Johnson... Sorry? Kyle Johnson edited collection. Oh, this is... uh, Kyle Johnson, that's right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, The Good Place and Philosophy I've got coming out. Before long, hopefully, Black Panther and Philosophy. Oh, fun. I didn't know that was going on. Cool. So, so the main things I'm working... Really waiting for the Dark Tower and philosophy to come oh, out, but we've great. got to wait for um, the TV series first. So I actually wrote three chapters for that. Wow! But I've been sitting on it for ages now, more than a year, because we've got to Break wait for right the, the show to come out. Remember that? Yeah. I was talking about his dark material really shortly. Yeah, great. No, those those sound like great projects. Looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, we'll very forward good. To very, oh, and I've, I've got a I've got a paper you could look at online called uh, "Why Writing Philosophy for the Public is a Moral Obligation." <gasps> That's certainly something I'd like to. Uh, oh, so on. hey, so we run a web page called Utah Public Philosophy. Oh, yes. would you mind if we share we that? that? Please do. Okay, please wonderful. do. I'd love wonderful. that. Yes, we'll yes, be looking yes. for that, folks. Yeah, yeah. So utahpublicphilosophy.com will we'll have that, that up yeah. um, since we get back. Oh, from brilliant! Conference. Terrific. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks Wonderful. very much. Thanks so yeah, much. Thank you fun. so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Great. Cheers. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage. That's, I think, thereforeifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.